Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey guys, Brian here. Yes, the baby finally came. Six pounds even. Happy and healthy, and everybody's doing well. Thank you, all of you, for the kind words I've been receiving. We're very happy, as you can imagine. So, a little bit of business before we get started, though. Um, As you know, I aim to do about an episode a week. But so far, the day that the episodes have been dropping has been a little bit hit or miss. So, from now on, starting now, I'm going to try to release new episodes every Monday. So that should help you guys know when to expect new material uh, on Mondays. Also, I have a little bit of a unique appeal to you, the listeners. As you know, I got interviews with a large portion of the Netscape team last month. So naturally, I wanted to also talk to some Microsoft people, some Internet Explorer people specifically, to hear about their story as well. Well, that's been sort of a bust so far. Uh, I've reached out to a bunch of former Microsoft people, and I've I've come close a couple of times, and actually I think I'm going to be speaking with a major Microsoft executive from that era soon, uh, but but not till June. So I don't know, maybe, maybe Microsoft is a bit more of a secretive company, uh, maybe Microsoft people think I'll badmouth Internet Explorer, which I absolutely would not. I mean, I promise I I have no other agenda here other than to get everyone's uh, recollections for the historical record. Anyway, this is my appeal to you, though, the audience. This is, I guess, a crowdsourced uh, networking appeal. Do you know anyone who worked at Microsoft in the mid-1990s? If so, could you have them get in touch with me? I'm obviously looking for people who worked on the Internet Explorer project specifically, and hopefully the Internet Explorer team, uh, Internet Explorer 1.0 team. But I'm interested in speaking to anyone who worked at Microsoft during that era because they might be able to put me in touch with the right people. Uh, and, And while we're at it, and this is a tougher one, if anybody out there knows anyone who worked on the Pathfinder project at Time Warner in the mid 1990s, again, uh, please have them get in touch with me. It would be a big help. 
Okay, sorry for the long preamble. Let's get to it. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 4, Part 1, entitled The Early Search Engines and Yahoo. The entrepreneur and venture capitalist Chris Dixon once remarked, quote, The next big thing always starts out dismissed as a toy, unquote. This is very often true with Internet technologies, A new site or a new tool can, on first encounter, seem gimmicky at best, and a fad at worst. Why would I ever want to use that or do that? That's many a first user's impression of something new on the internet. But inevitably, the new thing starts popping up in novel and ever-expanding use cases. And then, perhaps without anyone realizing it, the new thing explodes in popularity. And then before you can even blink again, the new thing has achieved ubiquity and has turned into a, quote, real thing. And then comes the billion-dollar valuation, and people shake their heads in disbelief. But then after that, for the lucky ones, of course, comes the IPO and the $100 billion market cap. And then the new thing is now an institution, something that has fundamentally changed our society. And all this came from a toy. This cycle seemingly repeats itself over and over again over the course of the internet era. Perhaps it's the ephemeral, intangible nature of the internet itself that makes this sort of cycle inevitable. There's no there there, at least at first, and yet everything is there. And it was always there from the very beginning. The internet has a way of inventing new things with such regularity that our threshold for credulity and credibility is constantly being challenged. One day, Facebook was just something that the kids were doing in college. The next day, your grandmother was on it, and there was an Academy Award-winning movie about it. Twitter still sort of suffers from this disbelief. People are always asking, why do people care what I had for lunch? What does Twitter even do? And and that's despite the fact that Twitter is arguably the greatest internet utility in the light, power, and water sense of the word utility since the invention of email. The entire internet itself went through this cycle, in fact. The geeks had built it, Netscape had popularized it, and Suddenly, by 1994, 95, 96, you couldn't stop hearing about it. But what exactly was it? Well, that's kind of hard to say, even in retrospect. At the time, the most enthusiastic net cheerleaders were touting the internet and the World Wide Web as revolutionary new mediums that would completely change our lives. But there were still a lot of other people who were looking at the net and saw, yes, a toy. 
And we have to admit that these skeptics had a valid point of view, even with the benefit of hindsight. Because what exactly were people doing on the early web? What were the sites they were surfing to in their Netscape browsers? What utility did the web bring? Again, it's kind of hard to say even now, and it was doubly harder to say at the time. Not to be pedantic or evasive about this, but the early web was sort of everything and nothing at exactly the same time. For example, one of the most famous early websites was the Netscape Fish Cam, which was maintained by Lou Montuli, one of the original Mosaic 6 uh, that went on to Netscape. Um, and Lou talked about this a little bit in uh, his interview with us, which you can listen to in an earlier episode. The fish cam was simply a live webcam of a fish tank. Nothing more. It still functions to this day at fishcam.com, but again, it's a live video feed of a fish tank. That's it. But for people on the early web, the fact that at any time of day or night, anywhere in the world, on the other side of the world, you could see what was going on in a fish tank, well, that was just kind of cool. For every fish cam, for that matter, for every site that translated your name into Hawaiian or featured bovine trivia for no particular reason, like cows caught in the web, there were also genuinely interesting sites doing genuinely interesting things. It just depended on what your interest might be. There were things like the Frank Lloyd Wright source page, which tried to catalog pictures and analysis of every work that the great architect ever created. There was Hiram's Inner Chamber, which provided info on Freemasonry. If you were a fan of the 1990s cartoon series Animaniacs, the Animaniacs page was obsessively complete. The Gallup organization maintained a website of their latest polling data. The Bonsai homepage was all things tiny Japanese trees. The list of cool, neat, interesting, niche websites could go on and on and on. Again, this was because the nature of the web made publishing so simple, and so anyone could publish a website about anything, and lots of people did. But there were early websites with serious utility as well. Most people reckon that the first commercial for-profit web publication was a site called Global Network Navigator, or GNN. And that was launched all the way back in May of 1993 under the umbrella of the technology publishing company O'Reilly & Associates. The Bureau of Labor Statistics maintained their website very early on to provide up-to-the-minute data on labor market trends. FedEx famously allowed customers to track the status of package shipments before most people even knew that the web existed. Alamo Rent-A-Car was the first to allow users to book a car from their website. Banknet in Britain was the first bank to allow online account creation if not actual online banking. A site called Nature's Rose Floral Services allowed you to order flowers from the web, and classifieds began migrating to the web almost from the very beginning. 
For example, the company that would eventually become Monster.com began life in 1994 as the Monster Board, which was probably the first classified advertising job site on the internet. By the end of 1994, it was estimated that the number of websites in the world had passed 10,000. The number of individual web pages was considerably greater. This was because it wasn't very easy to get a website or a web page hosted at this point, and then getting it published during these early days was even harder. It wasn't until 1995, in fact, that individuals were even allowed to register their own .com domain names. So most of the early websites had to be published wherever they could, and more often than not, that meant piggybacking on existing academic or corporate sites. So if you wanted to visit Apple's website, you could do so by going to www.apple.com very, very early on. But if say, you were looking for Gabriel's HTML editor list in order to find good HTML authoring software, well, then you had to browse to http forward slash forward slash luff.latrobe.edu.au forward slash squiggly forward slash editors forward slash. If you wanted an online tarot card reading, then you had to remember and type in http forward slash forward slash cad dot ucla forward slash edu forward slash repository forward slash useful forward slash tarot dot html. The inscrutability of these early URLs combined with the web's vastness and anonymity to present a tree falling in the woods sort of problem. Anyone could now publish anything on the web, but if you did, how would anyone ever know about it? And furthermore, how would they find you even if they knew that they wanted to? And so, necessity dictated that search engines and search sites would become the most popular and most important early websites. The pre-web internet had search tools such as Archie and Gopher, but the manic growth of the web presented a problem of greater magnitude. Since the early web came out of academia, and since cataloging this unmapped new ecosystem that was the World Wide Web was sort of an academic problem, almost all of the early search engines came out of academia itself. There were many different early web search engines and tools, and they all had varying degrees of utility, of course, but pinning down which one was actually first is still open to debate. For the sake of brevity and clarity, we can focus on those that were the longest-lasting and actually led to consumer products and commercial companies. One of the first web-specific search engines was called Architext. It was the brainchild of six undergraduate students at Stanford University as far back as 1993. Architext was designed as a software tool for searching large databases. Providentially, the web appeared on the scene at exactly the same point, and it presented the largest database imaginable. The student team was courted by venture capital before they had even decided what to do with their project. 
The venture capitalists obviously saw the obvious application of using Architext on the web. The first investment was made by Kleiner Perkins, the VC company that had backed Netscape. The students were told to, quote, believe in the size of the opportunity, end quote, that the web presented, and in the words of Joe Krauss, one of the six founders, they were to, quote, build up the company to meet it, end quote. A web-only version of Architext was launched under the brand name Excite in 1995. It would, for many years, enjoy the distinction of being the second most popular search engine, the perennial Pepsi or Ford of web search, at www.excite.com. Another early search engine was Lycos, which is Latin for wolf. Lycos was born as a research project at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Its initial claim to fame was that its engine created the largest and most comprehensive index of web documents, covering 19 million web pages at the time. In 1996, it would become one of the fastest companies ever to go from conception to IPO in NASDAQ history. Webcrawler was born as the side project of a University of Washington computer science student named Brian Pinkerton in January of 1994. It, too, was a desktop application first, but it went live on the web in April of 1994 with an index of 6,000 web servers. It had the distinction of being the first search engine that indexed the text on the entirety of a web page, instead of just searching page titles or preview text. Webcrawler was bought by America Online as early as June of 1995, as AOL was preparing to embrace the web and thereby do battle with Microsoft and MSN. Also in January of 1994 came InfoSeek, the brainchild of a veteran entrepreneur named Stephen Kirsch. Unlike these other search engines we've mentioned previously, InfoSeek was a Silicon Valley native, founded in Sunnyvale, California. InfoSeek's search engine was originally a fee service that charged for searches, only to eventually go free on the web in August of 1994. Also, there was AltaVista, which was also not created in academia, but inside the computer maker DEC's research laboratories. It was launched publicly as a free web service in December of 1995, and it promised a greater focus on search relevancy. Relevancy was actually a major issue. The not-so-secret truth about all the early search engines was that they really weren't very good. They returned results in a way that could be comprehensive, sure, but often had no accuracy. A search for, say, windsurfing might give you a list of every webpage in the world that even mentioned the word windsurfing, but made no effort to sort for context. What was the best windsurfing site on the web? The search engines had no way of telling you. A more refined search for, say, windsurfing in California might return sites for windsurfing or California, but maybe not both. The searcher might find the state of California's official government website at the top of the list, 
or maybe a site for a windsurfing company in Hawaii, but not in California. The cause of these poor results came down to the automated nature of the search process itself. To this day, a, quote, search engine, unquote, is actually a database of website copies. The search engine sends out spiders, which are computer programs that go out onto the web and find new web pages that have been published. The spiders find the pages, catalog their location, and then copy some or all of the text into their own database. When a user searches a search engine, they're not actually searching the web itself in real time, but are instead querying that database of copied web pages that the search engine has compiled. The accuracy and comprehensiveness of this database, at least at the very beginning, varied from search engine to search engine. The results also varied wildly depending on the weight each search engine gave to various factors in its database. Search engine A might list a certain web page as the number one result for windsurfing because the word windsurfing was prominent in the title of the web page. But search engine B might list a completely different page as the first result because the word windsurfing showed up 12 times in the body of the web page. Though they worked very hard to make them otherwise, the algorithms that the early search engines used to sort and rank pages were crude and very ineffective. Because the algorithms were crude, they were also very easy to rig. Another well-known truth about search is that users tend to click on the first few entries the vast majority of times they search the web. As many as 53% of people click on the very first result returned during a search. A staggering 87% of users click on only the first one through five results. Being first, or at least being near the top of a search, could bring a website a lot of traffic for doing basically nothing but showing up. Being second or ninth, well, that could feel like being nowhere. Webmasters and people that were publishing websites were thus greatly incentivized to rank themselves highly. The poor search results search engines generated got even worse as websites began to engineer ways to boost their rankings. Because the algorithms were so ineffectual, you sometimes didn't have to do much to trick the bots. Let's say, for example, I wanted my web page to rank well for the keyword windsurfing, and I knew that search engine B's algorithm just gave weight to the number of times a keyword, in this case windsurfing, might appear in the text on a given web page. Well, then I'd simply list windsurfing about a thousand times on my page. If the algorithm in question was tweaked to discourage this obvious manipulation, I then might do something like put the word windsurfing in white font a thousand times at the end of my white web page. The words would be invisible to humans, but would still be read and registered by the spiders and the bots. Simple, crude stuff, but actually very effective for a long time. And it was manipulative tactics just like these on the part of webmasters that helped make the early search engines so ineffective. 
In the Google world we're now living in, it's difficult to imagine how chaotic the early web was before an effective search mechanism was available. It would be many years, of course, before Google would come along and fix this problem. But for now, early web users were left to the devices of the early search engines such as they were. The obvious alternative to this early state of affairs was to try to bring a human element to search. And in fact, the dominant player that would emerge in search at this early part of the internet era was not strictly a search engine at all, but a directory, compiled not by bots, but by actual human beings. Those human beings were Jerry Yang and David Philo. In early 1994, Yang and Philo were PhD students in electrical engineering at Stanford University. Yang was the outgoing, gregarious one of the two. Born in Taiwan, Yang moved with his family to California when he was 10. He claims that on his first day of school in America, the sum total of his English vocabulary was the word shoe. Philo was the quieter, more circumspect of the pair. So circumspect, in fact, that friends nicknamed him the Unabomber. Like Mark Andreessen, Philo was born in Wisconsin, but was largely brought up in Louisiana. Yang and Philo knew each other from their time at Stanford, but they really bonded when they signed up for a brief teaching stint in Japan. The dissertation that the two were ostensibly working on in the spring of 1994 involved design automation software, which was a hot area of research at the time. Yang and Philo shared side-by-side cubicles in a Stanford portable trailer in lieu of actual office space. But they had the trailer to themselves. Their dissertation advisor was on sabbatical, so they were free to order pizza, goof around, and occasionally do some research. They named their computer workstations after their favorite sumo wrestlers, a passion that they had picked up during their time in Japan. Yang's was named Akibono, and Philo's was named Konishiki. More often than not, one or both of them would end up sleeping in the trailer. A friend called the trailer, quote, a cockroach's picture of Christmas, end quote. But the two students weren't exactly burning through their dissertation— Philo had discovered the Mosaic browser early on, shortly after it was released, in fact, and this led the pair to an all-consuming obsession with the World Wide Web. In those days, it was still possible to visit every single website in existence in a matter of a few hours. But new websites were popping up every single day, so... In the hours when they should have been doing research, Yang and Philo were browsing the web instead, trying to find and catalog the new. Always a bit intellectually competitive, the two began collecting and then trading links to the new websites that they found. They started compiling these favorite links into a list, each trying to outdo the other by finding the coolest new site of the day. Yang would remember later, quote, I kept bugging Dave to show me the sites that he had found. So he made me his hot list, and I made my hot list, and he wrote some software to combine both of our lists, end quote. 
Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This was right at the moment when Mosaic was lighting the fuse under the powder keg that was the World Wide Web. And so as the web grew that summer, things got a bit more complicated. Because Yang's workstation was hooked up to Stanford's public internet connection, other people could view the list that the two were generating by going to http forward slash forward slash akibono.stanford.edu. The list was called Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web, and it proved popular among Yang and Philo's group of friends. Word of mouth spread the news of the list even further than that, and soon complete strangers were emailing in suggestions of new sites to be included. In order to keep things reasonably organized, Yang and Philo broke the list out into a hierarchical directory. Thus, to find MTV's homepage, a user drilled down by category, like entertainment, then music, then music videos, then MTV.com. The pair came up with their own software to seek out ever-newer sites and web pages, but the additions to the directory were made entirely at Yang and Philo's discretion and entirely by hand. In those days, there was no automation and no algorithm. The pair began working on the directory to the exclusion of almost everything else. It was an all-consuming project, an obsession. They would toil away on their list for dozens of hours at a stretch, trading off sleeping on the floor, only to go back to more searching and more indexing later. For Yang and Philo, it wasn't work, it was fun. The added benefit was, it wasn't what they were supposed to be doing. Yang admitted later, quote, We wanted to avoid doing our dissertations. End quote. And Yahoo was the perfect distraction for doing that. When their dissertation advisor returned from her European sabbatical, she was stunned to find that the messy trailer was now the headquarters of a world-famous internet phenomenon. By September 1994, around the time that the Netscape beta was coming out, Yang and Philo had compiled a directory of more than 2,000 sites. What was more impressive was the fact that Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web was getting 50,000 hits, or searches a day. The same parabolic web growth that Mosaic had simultaneously ridden and helped stoke, 
and that Netscape was soon to send into overdrive, was booing Jerry's web guide as well. What had started as a hobby now became a full-time project. Yang said later, quote, We were in a unique situation in the summer of 1994. To be able to experience that kind of grassroots growth, fueled by a lot of interest that was not of our doing, and then just sitting back to watch the access logs go up. End quote. Yang and Philo decided that their software project needed a better name. A convention among software developers at the time was to name projects yet another something something. So, for example, YAML stood for yet another markup language. And so Yang and Philo settled on the name Yahoo, which they claimed stood for yet another hierarchical, officious oracle. They put an exclamation point at the end of Yahoo, which was irreverent and entirely intentional, because, as Philo put it, it was, quote, pure marketing hype. The URL to the new site became akibono.stanford.edu forward slash Yahoo. In contrast to what the Mosaic team had experienced at the University of Illinois, Stanford has a long history of being supportive towards student-run projects that may or may not evolve into startups someday. So initially, Stanford was a generous host of Yahoo's traffic and content, free of charge. When Netscape did launch its beta browser in late 1994, it decided to make Yahoo the default link when a user clicked on the directory button at the top menu of the browser. No one could have anticipated it beforehand, but it turned out that having a button on Netscape Navigator's menu bar was almost as valuable as having an icon on the Windows desktop. All those early web users who surfed the web via Netscape were introduced to Yahoo as the de facto search utility. The flow of curious web searchers grew into a flood. Yahoo had its first million-hit day in late 1994. By January of 1995, Yahoo had grown into a directory of 10,000 sites and was getting more than 100,000 unique visitors a day. The servers began to struggle under the deluge of searchers. And it turned out that there was a limit to Stanford's generosity after all. The university soon asked Yang and Philo to find another host for their website. For Jerry Yang and David Philo, it was the moment of truth. For months, they had left their dissertation languishing. Now it was time to decide if Yahoo was a real thing or not, and whether or not the boys were willing to become businessmen. Yang later told Fortune magazine, quote, David had it in his gut very early on that Yahoo could ultimately be a consumer interface to the web, rather than simply a search engine or a piece of technology. We weren't really sure you could make a business out of it, though. End quote. Interested parties were already forming a line at Yahoo's trailer door. Reuters, MCI, Microsoft, CNET, and a pre-IPO Netscape all met with the boys to see if some form of partnership or buyout was possible. In order to build bridges, Mark Andreessen reached out and solved the hosting problem by agreeing to host Yahoo temporarily on one of Netscape's spare Silicon Graphics servers. Yang and Philo would be able to leave Stanford behind and strike off on their own. 
if they wanted to take the leap into entrepreneurship. 